Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. I fully agree. I mean, we say all the time, it's it's like a, a little, it's like a quote that we have um, internally as a team. And it's this idea that standing out isn't a matter of taste, it's a matter of survival. I mean, you have to do something to um, separate yourself from the pack. And I think so people are so afraid of pissing off just uh, you know a sect of their industry or losing one client that they water down everything they do. And then everything is vanilla and everything's mundane and everything's uninteresting. And it's been, it's been put through the ringer of, of so many uh, you know, eyes and teams that just keep stripping down anything that can make it unique and memorable and fresh. And that's the sad part is when like businesses are getting so big is that they're just losing all, like all that opportunity to really make an impact with their, their customers. And they're just leaning into, Hey, we have a, we already have notoriety because we're a big brand as opposed to having any sort of longevity or shelf life long-term with their customers and building these relationships that actually matter and, and will be effective in the long term. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Doing creative work can be kind of lonely, and that's why we built the Unmistakable Listener Tribe. The tribe is a community for professionals to connect and support each other. Everything is designed to help you grow your business and share what's working and what isn't. And that's true whether you're a business owner or an artist. You'll get access to feedback, live conversations with guests, and so much more. By joining the tribe, you become part of a community of creators who all support each other, and it's completely free. Hopefully, I'll see you there. Visit unmistakablecreative.com slash tribe to join. Again, that's unmistakablecreative.com slash tribe. Ali, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I found out about you because you wrote in uh, and you told me a little bit about what you guys do at your branding agency using humor as a way of building brands, which uh, to me, that was one of those sort of things that I thought, yes, this is absolutely unmistakable. Uh, I am extremely curious about this, but as you know from having heard our interviews, before we get into all of that, I want to start by asking you, what social group were you a part of in high school, and what impact has that had on the choices that you've made throughout your life and your career? Yeah, so I, I like love this question. I think it's so fascinating. In high school, I was, um, we had kind of a, 
our high school, the people that were really involved in school who were in a lot of like the honors classes, it's it seemed to overlap with a lot of the athletes. And that's the world I played in. Um, I was like in student council on the volleyball team. I was like the probably I look back and I I like was in every single yearbook photo because I, I wanted to spread myself across every single possible organization and team that my high school offered. I, I feel like I had like a really good niche of high school friends. They're still my best friends today, but I'm the person that plans the high school reunions because I think I could move through all the groups pretty easily. I I just really liked everyone I went to high school with. I I didn't care if people were perceived to be uncool or or, you know, uh, outside of my social circle. I just I don't know, I had a lot of empathy for for people in my grade and just really seemed to like everyone I I grew up with. And so that's a really fun thing now 20 years later when I get to go back to reunions and just really see these people grow into their own and that's like a really fun thing for me. So, yeah, I feel like I kind of moved through a lot of different groups in in high school. That capacity to navigate, you know, sort of multiple social groups, multiple people. Do you think that, that is something that can be learned? Uh, or do you think some people naturally have it? Because I think like I realize now if I went back to college, having done the unmistakable creative, knowing everything I know, that would have been the approach I would have taken. Like I jokingly say I would have been like the Van Wilder of my college. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like to me, I was like, if anybody wants to build an amazing social life when they're in college, they should just watch that movie and follow that model. Uh, because even if you're the most uncool person in the world, you could do that. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely think that people, there are some people who just naturally have more empathy or just an open mind toward people who are different than them. I do think that that is something that can be just like an inherent quality. But I do think that if we were taught to just embrace others and to be open and to reserve judgment and to have more internal self-confidence so we can approach uh, people without, you know, the desire to criticize or critique and can really just meet them where they are and learn from them and, and be able to, to just engage with people that, you know, uh, that weren't, you know, so much like us. I think that that would be such a, just a much healthier, more beautiful existence to be a part of. And I feel like I came from a family that is really, uh, outgoing and very just open and tends to like, all quirky, uh, you know, weird, offbeat, uh, you know, kind of everyone. They're, they're just really uh, comfortable in social settings and just really embracing uh, the unfamiliar. So I think I did grow up with that. And I also think I, I think part of me, you know, it probably did come from a place of some of it was confidence and some of it was insecurity is I wanted everyone to like me. I didn't want to mm-hmm. be disliked or I didn't want to be ousted from the group and I didn't want to be on the outside. And so I, I, tried to make friends with everyone. So I always had a home. So, um, yeah, I don't think it was all pure, you know, it was all pure intentions, but I, you know, I think I can maybe see that more now as an adult. So it's funny because I wrote this piece on medium that went viral a while back, cuddle what we should have learned in school, but never did. And one of the things I talked about was this whole idea of, of managing your psychology. And I I thought, you know, this is really sort of the foundation, you know, self-esteem, self-worth, uh, and it, like I had all these sort of you know, even questions now uh, after going through that experience of writing that article, you know, looking at, OK, why aren't we teaching these things in school? Uh, you know, what do you say to the the parent who has the kid who feels completely uncool or unfit 
Uh, and, and, you know, the, I think the the other thing I remember thinking to myself was like, man, I really wish I could ask the prettiest girl in school if she knew that everybody thought she was the prettiest girl in school. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I, I wonder if our misperceptions of people who are in these sort of, you know, positions of status in high school uh, is completely misconstrued. And, and then you also realize this. I was having this conversation with a friend the other day. Uh, I said, you know, like teenagers are assholes. Like they just are. Oh, like, yeah. We're, we're so obnoxious when we're teenagers. And, and, you know, like I remember when you get to that sort of phase of popularity and, and nice clothes and all of that stuff. And you know, I said, could you imagine as a grown man walking up to somebody in the grocery store and making fun of their shoes because they weren't Nikes? He's like, no, that would be fucking absurd. God, that's I know. exactly what we do as, as teenagers. So I wonder, you know, as somebody who is this sort of social chameleon, how do you think about that? You know, what do you think we should be teaching in school that we haven't for people to be able to navigate this dynamic without you know, resorting to a school shooting to solve this problem. Yeah. I mean, I love what you said about teaching self-worth. I think that that makes all the difference. If I think we treat people the way that we internally feel about ourselves, we, we judge people in the way that we judge ourselves. We, uh, we have, uh, the, the confidence to bring to a situation based on the internal confidence we hold within. And, I think that that is such a that is such a make or break uh, quality and characteristic as a person, and I think that if people did value who they were and could embrace and appreciate just all the aspects of 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 the, you know their skill set or their uh, the value they bring to the table, I think that it would just change the dynamic of how we interact with other people. Um, so I, I just I think that that would make all all the difference. I know that me personally, like as I as I got older and started to reflect back on high school, like, you know, and even I can share in this conversation, I, I was an honors kid. I was an athlete, but I was really tall. I'm five, eight now, but as a kid, that's really tall for a female. I was probably 25 pounds heavier than I am now. I'm like, in pretty, you know, average good. I'm in pretty good shape, but just a, you know, a slender body type now. But I felt, I remember feeling just bigger and I felt uncomfortable, but I don't think I ever presented that way. I think I came off as confident, but I think that I had so much internal judgment that I'm sure it, it, it caused me to show up a little bit, uh, differently than I really felt inside. And I, you know, I felt a lot of, uh, you know, just internal anxiety and stress. And again, wanted everyone to like me because I didn't, I didn't like all the parts of myself at that age, even though I didn't let let anyone in on that. And so I just think back now, I think now and go, man, I wish I would have seen all those great qualities in myself because I think there's so much more I could have given at that age that I just didn't have the capacity for or wasn't equipped with. And yeah. So how did you resolve all of that? Well, I mean, it was a long, it was a long journey for me. I, you know, I, I had a really bad eating disorder right out of high school. Um, I struggled with that for about seven years. Um, it's funny. I didn't, it took me, so I had bulimia, um, and I battled that from age 18 through 24 ish. And it probably took me till the age of about 29 to realize that something happened in high school that I internalized and it didn't show up until after high school. And it really became the catalyst for my eating disorder. It's going to stop. It's going to sound really weird, but I was walking through the halls one day in high school. And again, like I was a very happy-go-lucky teen. I was really involved. I felt like I had a ton of friends and 
really enjoyed my high school experience. I still look back on it with nothing but fond memories. But my senior year of high school, I was walking through the halls in between classes and um, there was pay- we had payphones back then, and there was a payphone down by the gymnasium, and and I had a I was in a school of about twelve hundred kids, so I'm walking through the halls by myself, and there is a crumpled up note under a payphone, and I am a curious kid, so you know you, kids love gossip at the age of seventeen, and so I bent down, picked up the note, unfolded it, unfolded it, and read it, and the note was about me. I have a, again, a, a school of 1,200 plus kids. Someone had written, did you see Allie in that skirt today? Oh my God, she looks so fat. And I folded it up. I put it in the garbage and I never told anyone about it. And I remember as it was the first time in my you know youth that I felt like I the world didn't see me like I saw me. And I felt really embarrassed and very ashamed. And I really internalized that feeling. And it you know, I graduated high school a few months later. And upon entering college, I was, you know, in college a couple months. And and over that time, I had been, you know, trying to diet and trying to lose weight and and really feeling a lot of shame, but not really connecting it back to that moment. And that spiraled into a really bad eating disorder for, uh, like I said, six and a half years where I was hospitalized a couple times. I, I, I uh, had to go to therapy. I hid it for years and was very ashamed of it. And it really took me getting out of that and getting through that to then reflect back and go, oh, it was this moment really changed so much for me. And it, and it made me think that the world uh, saw only the worst parts of me, perceived worst parts of me when I, you know, and it, it felt like it opened me up to a reality that I, that I was really uncomfortable with. And I, you know, I believe that that was the way the world saw me. So yeah, that was, uh, that was wild to be able to just reflect on that. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. 
connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah. So yeah, I wonder with, with somebody who has an eating disorder, like on the surface, would we even notice that you were dealing with this? Like, would you, or would you have appeared to be completely put together to the people in your life? Um, I think... I think I presented well for a while. And then very quickly when I dropped so much weight that I looked sickly, um, I think people knew very quickly what was going on. I mean, mine was very, it got very extreme, very quick. And so I lost probably 25 pounds in within six, six to eight weeks. I, you know, I, my face started to get swollen because I was purging and so people started to notice uh, within the first six months to a year, um, and no one really knew how to handle it because I was still presenting very confident and very outgoing, and I was showing up for school, and I had a job, and I was still very uh, you know social and all of those other components of myself that I tried to keep keep going because I didn't want anyone to know that I was struggling. Um, that, you know, that's an unfortunate, uh, dark side of my personality is I, I, I want to, I want to have it all together. I'm the one that everyone comes to for help. I, I'm not the one that needs it. And so it, it, uh, the first kind of iteration of people coming to me and, and them letting me know that they were in on what I was doing was when all of my high school friends, uh, they wrote my mother a letter. They all composed, a. a individual letters, put it in a manila envelope and gave it to my mom. And I was very angry. And I was very ashamed because the way I was approached was, haha, we're onto you. And it felt like it didn't feel loving. I felt like I, I decided, okay, well, I'm going to hide it further. And then I spent the next six years getting really, really good at hiding it and uh, looking, seeming healthy enough to where people weren't in on it or weren't in, um, in on my secret anymore. And that and yeah, and then I kind of just floated through those next years with an internal struggle with people not realizing how much I was suffering. And they thought that they had like nipped it in the bud. And really, I was just doing a better job of concealing it. Wow. Those are some good friends. Yeah, I know. It's it, it just, 
it's wild to think, I think like the intentions were, were good, but we, I don't think anyone had the emotional capacity or maybe the social awareness to recognize like what, how easy pain can be masked and how good some people are at putting on a, a, a brave face. So as somebody who has been through this experience in particular, I wonder how you think about image, particularly in the age of social media, uh, when our lives are so publicly on display. Uh, because, I mean, let's face it, you know, we've had enough social science researchers here to come and talk about sort of the toxic toxic impact this, this has had on people's mm-hmm. tendency to compare their self-image, you know, teenage girls. So as somebody who's been through this experience, I wonder, you know, how do you view sort of the Instagram filtered world that we live in? Yeah, this is a topic that I I could probably talk for days about because I I think I'm so aware of it and I'm so sensitive to it. And it's something that I've worked really hard in the last decade plus of my life to not get caught up in. And so I had I someone gave me really good advice one time that basically said if if at any part of you wants to share on social and it's coming from a place of validation or it's coming from a place of seeking or it's coming from a place of approval, don't do it that that don't look for that outside of yourself look for it within yourself and so i'm very yeah. sensitive to to that personally i i you know i have a following on social media and i engage with them when i feel like it comes from a pure place when i'm excited to share when i am proud of something if any part of me feels like as i'm posting that is it is done from a place of of feeling uh lack internally or I need their approval. It's like, I don't do it. And so I am, you know, as much as I am involved in this branding marketing world, I don't consume a ton of it because I have a really hard time watching the contrived nature of so many people's social experience. Um, Especially it's like when I know people um, Mm -hmm. intimately and I know uh, you know, even people I, I consort with on a business level, but I actually, they've confided parts of their lives to me. And then I see this false narrative on social and I see that they're living in this filter world. And I know that they're struggling with insecurity and I know they're struggling uh, with with things happening in their personal life. It's really hard for me to see that because I go, man, you're, you're, you're adding to the problem. Mm-hmm. It's like, you're, you're, you're creating this story of who you want to be on social. And there's such a gap between who you want to be and who you're actually actually are that it's it's cultivating more anxiety and stress and pain. Well, and so, yeah. I mean, that's such a complicated thing when you're a public figure, right? Totally. Uh, yeah. I, I think I think about this a, a lot because I I remember I, you know, I was kind of going off the rails on social media after a bad breakup and and my mentor was like, "Dude, this is completely unacceptable." He's like, yeah, "You're yeah, the, yeah. you're the CEO of a company and and like a big brand." So I had to quit completely, but I also, you know, I remember like right after, you know, we just raised a, a seed round of investment. We, I got a book deal with a publisher and, you know, like even after raising investor money, I'm like, wow, I have to be really mindful about how I appear on the internet, mm-hmm. uh, particularly because my applic- my actions don't just uh, have an impact on me. They're a reflection on every single person who has bet on me professionally, whether that's my agent, whether that's my publisher, my speaking agent. And so it, it's, you're right. I mean, there's no question. It's like, okay, there's this gap between, you know, who you are and, and who you want to be that you portray on the internet. And yet, if you're in this kind of situation, it's a really sort of del- delicate balancing act between maintaining sort of, you know, this line of professionalism and being vulnerable enough to be real. Yeah. And well, I think, I love that you say that because I think that, um, I often like to think that what people are striving for is integrity, but what they're often delivering is a contrived authenticity. 
And I think that that vulnerability is so awesome on a social platform and showing up as your full self is it is incredible and really feeling proud of of the work you've done and, and what people what you've built and and uh your life and who you are is something that's it's so essential and people want more of that, right? But I often think that we're being now taught to um to leverage vulnerability and it's becoming manipulative as opposed to inspirational mm-hmm. and integral. And I often think of authenticity and integrity being quite different. I think authenticity is like, oh, I'm just going to be who I am, right? And this is just me being me. And I want you to love all those parts of me. And I don't, I don't know if authenticity is always powerful or always if, if your authentic self kind of sucks. <laughs> and I think, and I often think that that can be devoid of uh, a deeper morality, a deeper value system, deep, deeper beliefs, deeper core values. And I think that that's the, that's what integrity yeah. can offer. To me, integrity is a deeper version of authenticity. One that takes into account um, the, you know, the, the social experience and the people around you, and it is not so self-centric. Yeah. And so, um, I, I would love to see a world where more people were integral on social media as opposed to just authentic. Well, you, you, know, as you, you make me want to write a blog post titled why vulnerability is not a marketing tactic. Uh, oh, thank know, God. I want yeah, to read no, it. I, and you just, you know, I'll be sure to make note of that idea, but it, it just made me think about, you know, the, the fact that that that's so true. Like you, you see that and people are using that as a, a marketing tactic and, you know, and that whole authentic thing, like I know for a fact, there are things that I will never say on the air or on a public platform that I will happily say to my closest friends, you know, and they're politically incorrect, (laughs) you know, they're offensive, Mm -hmm. they're unfiltered. I remember my mom, you know, she's, you know, I remember I was having this conversation with my mom and she's like, you know, maybe you should consider developing some filters. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, well, I'm not going to do that, but it's like, I'm 40 years old or 41. I was like, that's not going to change. And she's, you know, it was pretty hilarious conversation, but I'm aware of that. But I also know that, okay, wait a minute. Like I'm having this conversation with you that a million people are going to hear. And there are times when I've had to go tell my editor, Josh, go cut that section out. You know, uh, oh yeah, it, it's you know you, you just you think about that. Like I, I remember saying something on the air on a, a podcast that I realized after I had recorded it was going to come across incredibly chauvinistic. I thought, oh my god, mm-hmm. like, this sounds really bad. This is a PR crisis in the making. Yeah, and yeah. My my teammates, you know, they said we don't trust you enough to you know let you, you tell us. You know, you, we don't trust that you are saying the answer the way you said it. You have a recording of this, right? I was like, yeah. They're like, play it for us. And they heard it and they're like, yeah, you got to email her and tell her that you need to re-record the interview. <laughs> um, well, well, I think, and I think that that's so, I mean, I think that your, your mom is, is, has a good point in that there are, there are so many uh, nuances to who we are as people. Yeah. And I think that it's not about manipulating a narrative in public, but it's going, okay, you know, not every part of me needs to show up in the public sphere, sphere rather. Because those are some parts of me can remain private. Some parts of me are not fully formed or fleshed out or well thought out or, uh, you know, applicable for the masses. And so those are parts I need to be a little bit more mindful of. And Uh that's okay, too. (laughs) I think everyone wants to, you know, wear uh, all parts of them on their sleeve. And that can be a little troublesome when we don't get the full picture. Mm hmm. 
Well, well, I mean, I think that this makes a, a real perfect transition to your work because I, I think part of the reason I wanted to start with that social group in high school question is because you know, the nature of your work seems to me that you guys really at the core of what you do is social science, but you're using humor as sort of the the medium in which to basically take ideas from social science. But mm-hmm. before we get into how this actually happens, how did you get here? Like, what was the path from, you know, being cool in high school to this? Yeah, well, it's funny enough. I was actually a psychology major in high school. I, uh, I've always really been fascinated by the human experience, how people, uh, perceive their, their experiences and their surroundings and how they react and respond to situations, how they interpret information. That's always been just so interesting to me because, you know, you know, coming from a, a place where, you know, I might see something one way and everyone around me interprets it a different way. It's really fascinating to go, okay, how do we each get there? So I've just always been interested in, in that element. Um, I've always had a, a creative, you know, uh, uh, a creative interest and that's always been a skill set that I've, I've had, but I never really knew that it had a place in the world. And so I, after college, I worked at consulting firms because I thought, okay, the thing that I'm good at is understanding people. It's problem solving. It's thinking through how to, um, to talk about, uh, you know, big ideas and big situations and, and make them digestible and palatable. But I didn't really know that, that, that fun, playful, creative part of myself, like had a place there. And so I started working in the consulting space. And then I, about six years in, I jumped ship and I, uh, I worked at a startup, um, was actually started by two uh, a pr- two principals that I worked with at the consulting firm, and I I joined them as a, a VP of engagement of customer engagement. And the reason they brought me on is because while I was working in the consulting space with them, and I and I was kind of in that world, I had a blog at the time where um, it was just a personal blog where I was uh, you know narrating kind of my life experience and talking about my you know my eating disorder journey for the first time. And I was using levity and humor to navigate that topic. And they really liked the way that I approached this kind of heavy dialogue and could bring some lightness to it without making light of it. And I wasn't just talking about that. I was talking about observations and just, you know, different funny things I was experiencing in life. So they brought me on because they wanted me to be able to understand the consumers and be able to um, to really empathize with them and also be able to speak with them and speak to them rather in a way that got them excited and engaged and feel compelled to further participate in the brand. And so that was my role. And that was the first time I ever saw that this, this passion I had for for humor and fun and play had a place in the business world. So I was there for about a year. And then after that, I started to go, hey, this is something I want to do more of. And so I started to work to work in branding and marketing on my own and started to just work with companies and individuals, um, again, uh, working on their their message strategy and, and developing their voice and developing their brand personality and not really realizing that that was a unique or or different or interesting way to approach it. And the approach I kept taking was, was um, fun and humor and levity uh, because I kept seeing that so many people were, uh, were using, were preying on the, the fear and the pain and the, the perceived inadequacies of their consumers. And I just felt like that was a cruddy, uh, cowardice way to approach branding and marketing. And so I wasn't going to be a part of that. 
And so mm. I was like, there has to be a better way, not knowing that there was a science behind it, not knowing any of that, just going, this feels better. This seems to be as effective. People respond to it. People are engaged when I make them feel good, when I make them laugh, when I make them smile, when I make them feel comfortable. And, and look, they're just as inclined to, to, to share, to buy as they are if I was preying on them. And this is just such a, a more, uh, a feel good experience all around. And so I was doing that for several years and my best friend was a copy and comedy writer. So we would just always talk about this. It's how customers would often approach us and really want to either play it safe with their branding and marketing or really, you know, play to the pain of their customers. And we just really had a line in the sand where we said, we don't do it that way. Yeah. And, and after, you know, many years of just having these dialogues and doing it kind of in this, in this fresh, feel good way, we were like, Hey, let's start an agency rooted in, in this idea that fun sells and mm -hmm. let's build our entire agency on this platform. And like, this is the way we do things here. And so three years ago, we started obedient and, and have just really been committed to that approach. And it's been the best, <laughs> the best thing I've ever done in my life. I get to laugh and make people feel good for a living. And that's awesome. So I, I have to ask you about the name because the name seems like a paradox given the nature of the work. Yeah. 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 How did you guys yeah. choose obedient? Yeah. Well, we wanted a name that was a paradox. Like we okay. wanted something tongue, tongue in cheek. We wanted something that was the opposite of the thing that we were doing. Wow. Uh, we played around with a lot of name ideas that were kind of that, you know, the opposite of what, of what the intention actually was. And we landed on obedient and we thought, God, it's two women starting an agency and obedience being so tied to this, you know, the, the, you know, the female narrative. How funny would it be to be two women who like, took the power from this word and spun it and made it our own. And, yeah. and like the whole goal being disobedient in every single way that we approach creative and ideas and branding for businesses. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com.
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Okay, so I, I love this. You mentioned one of my favorite words, which is there's a you know a science behind this. Uh-huh. Um, so let's actually get into the science. I mean, I think the the thing where I want to start really is by understanding you know what people want, like, and and then how you really incorporate the science of, of everything that you do into that. Like, if you were having me walk through understanding my listeners better, how would you do that? Yeah, well, so let me let me give you the broader science of, uh, of how we even got to this this idea of laughter working. And then I'll, and then I'll talk to you a little bit about that too. So there are three core emotions that release um, adrenaline into your system. They are fear, they are grief, and they are laughter and they all work and they're all effective. Um, Fear, like I mentioned before, it is an effective approach and it, it does work to get people to buy from you. Um, But the problem with fear is that when you're using fear is that your consumers are ultimately loyal to their pain and not to you. They're a pro- they're coming to you because they want you to fill a need, fill a void, um, meet some, some longing they have internally. And like, and you're telling them that your products and your services can do that. But as soon as you no longer can fix them, they will move on to you and never move on from you rather and never look back because they're not loyal to you. They're loyal to having their, their pain, uh, absolved. Um, Grief also works, but who wants to be the grief guy? <laughs> That's what we say. And then there's laughter. And laughter is so effective, and it's the only one that feels good. And it, it's really tough to get right. But when you can and you do, it endears people to you. It endears people to your brand because ultimately people want to be in the presence of things that make them feel good because it draws out the best parts of who they are. And that includes brands as well. Mm-hmm. So um, that answers the just kind of the broader uh, science part of it. But so tell me the, please repeat what you said again. So no, I can, I guess, the, really, you know, the, the, for the sake of a, a tactical example, I'll be selfish here and I you know, ask you how I would apply this to understanding my own listeners better or understanding my readers better. Yeah. Well, when we're working with any, any brand for the first time or any business for the first time, sometimes we think that businesses aren't actually brands until they, they have some sort of co- cohesive, consistent approach and message. But any any business looking at their consumers, um, you know, you want to understand their. You have to understand their pain points, their needs, their desires. What makes them tick? What keeps them up at night? What um, what? How do they want to spend their free time? What excites them? What makes them feel good? Uh, the the elements of 
of who they aspire to be and the qualities they're drawn to. So you have to really deeply understand their audience. So, so that's part of like, we're always trying to dig in and, and really get to that core of who they are. Because, you know, I think a lot of people get caught up in, in uh, demographic data, which is also important. It tells you a lot about people. It, it just does. However, the parts that we really uh, care about is we want to understand your audience because we want to evoke the right emotions from your audience. So when we are, um, when we are thinking of how to shape the, the right position of a brand and the personality of a brand, what we're ultimately thinking is that we want to draw out the, the right emotion and responses and evoke the right things from your audience because that's when it, that's what's really going to get them to be excited by you and um, endeared to you and pay attention to you and talk about you and be obsessed with your brand is if you draw out the things in them that compel them to take further action and explore who you are further. Yeah. It's funny you say that because I, th- I think I said, you know, if you can make somebody feel something, it's much easier to get them to do something. Uh, oh, and- yes. Yeah that's one of the things I, I am always looking for when I, when I talk to guests is, okay, is there an emotional re- resonance that's going to take place based on, on this conversation? And I think about it even in terms of writing. I'm like, okay, the, the writers that I think do extremely well are people who have emotional resonance and it's, that, that takes practice. That's, that's mm-hmm. hard. Um, I don't always hit it. Sometimes I do, but there are certain writers I think are masterful at it. You know, like I think people like Amber Ray and Sarah Peck, that really, in a lot of ways, is their gift is that they know how to take words and make us feel something with their words. Absolutely. It's such a powerful, it's such a powerful approach because I think part of why it lands with people is there is empathy embedded in that. It's this idea that like, I get you, I know you, I understand you, and I'm speaking right, right to you. And I, and like, we're in this together. And that's a really powerful um, customer emotion to, to really be able to draw out and and what can be so powerful about it is when it comes from a, a sincere integral place because that's yeah. always so important is when working working with any brand is like it has to be sincere people can sniff bs a mile away yeah. and people can sense when something is contrived and manipulated and inauthentic and like we're not here for that and your customers won't be either mm-hmm. so i wonder uh, what you see as differences across gender when it comes to this because like as i'm describing hearing you describe this my immediate thought was women are probably naturally way better at this than men uh and the reason i say that is because uh, i remember i think probably like five six years ago you know we had uh my friend erica learmark here as a guest and, and i you know I'd, I'd, we we're texting back and forth i said hey you know every time we have a female guest the downloads go up like we have more people and she said yeah that's because we talk to each other uh and so literally, and I think I've mentioned there, we literally did an entire month where we did nothing but female guests. And like, it was one of the best things we ever did to grow our audience. Yeah. I mean, I do think that, I think women are maybe a little bit more primed for uh, kind of the, the depth of dialogue and uh, emotion in a narrative. And, and I mean, we see that, you know, we, we do take a different, uh, well, we have like a myriad of ways we approach um, a, a consumer audience, but when we know that the audience is primarily women, yeah, we, we do dive into that. Uh, I won't even say emotion a little bit more, but I think like really diving into that, that empathy piece, I think does resonate a little bit more deeply, um, where I think, uh, from, you know, this is just, I'm making broad generalizations here, but like yeah. men tend to respond more to some of the shock value in, in a, and, and kind of the, the bold punchy language, uh, and be a little bit more receptive to that. And so, yeah, it's like a fine dance. Cause I don't think every, 
every woman reacts one way and every man reacts another way. But there are some things that just tend to be more effective based on gender. Yeah. So I guess, you know, what I, what I wonder is when you look at things uh, on the internet, like the skim uh, or hustle, mm-hmm. you, you know, when you look at it through this lens, what is it that makes those things as insanely successful as they are? Like, why have they been you know, able to do what they have? Yeah. I mean, I think that they make the complex digestible. They make the mundane interesting and entertaining. I think that that, that is the thing that they've taken this, like, you know, these heavy, complex, uh, maybe difficult to uh, absorb topics and they make it approachable for the masses. And I think that that, and they do, they, they bring in levity, they bring in humor, they bring in uh, like all of those fun little nuances that make people open up to this, to this, to the topic in a way that maybe uh, some of the other publications in the same space don't. Yeah. So you mentioned levity, uh, you know, multiple times. Uh, one, can you define that? And then also, like, if we're thinking about, you know, sort of a first interaction that a customer has or, or somebody who lands like on our website or has you know, receives our first email and an autoresponder, how would you apply this to that? Yeah. And so and when I think of levity, I think of just adding um, an element of lightness to uh, to message a message or to an experience um, I often think levity is is some mix of surprise and delight. It's like you say something that delights your audience and takes them by surprise, but they also can deeply relate to. Um, and I think that that's what makes it work really well. Um, in terms of first interactions, I, I think there's so many. First of all, I think if you're a business owner, every single touch point matters. Every single touch point is an opportunity to f- further connect with your audience, to say something of value, to let them know that you hear them, that you're like them, that you get them. And I think most people, they ignore all the other, you know, the micro elements of their, of their business and, and, and message. And they focus on just some of the hard, heavy hitting places like web copy, right? Or just a nurture sequence when there's, there's so many little things and little ways that you could really uh, speak to their, to their minds and their hearts. But, um, in terms of kind of the, uh, like the first, I'm sorry, can you repeat that question one more time? Just so yeah, I-, I guess, you know, like how would you modify that first interaction in order to connect with humor and, and levity and, and, you know, everything you've talked about, whether that be from a website or the first email somebody receives from you? Yeah. Well, I think there's so many ways you could spin it and play it depending on your industry and your audience and your, you know, the goals of your, of your brand. But I do think, um, a really fun approach is that, uh, you know, one approach and, and a fun one is that, is addressing commonly held truths of your industry and letting people know that you're in on it. So what I mean by that is that there are, there are these often commonly held uh, truths or criticisms or beliefs about specific products or services or industries as a whole. And I think if you can t- if you can showcase to your audience that hey we we know what you might be thinking we're in on it with you and address that in a really fun um, playful and, uh, playful and interesting way. I think that that's a, a, a very quick path to capture their attention and ultimately, um, their loyalty, because what you're saying is like, I'm not trying to pull the wool over your eyes or tell, or, or pretend that, um, like these, these truths or these beliefs don't exist. Like I'm here to just very quickly let you know, like, I, I'm, I get it. Like I, I see what you see and I hear what you hear. I think that's a really fun thing that I think brands don't do enough. Yeah. So, I mean, when somebody comes to you uh, to start out, like, what is the process and, and what draws them to you of all the people they could go to? And then what are the, I mean, do you, have you guys worked with personal brands or is it like just a wide mix? 
Gosh, yeah. And it's a huge mix. It's wild. We have worked with every type of business from a private ex- investigator who works to exonerate wrongly convicted individuals to health research campaigns, to fertility, uh, a fertility company, to um, uh, food and beverage, to skincare. I mean, we've been all over the map. And some some folks are, sometimes it's personal brands or it's more solopreneurs. Sometimes folks are in a startup phase where they've actually had funding. And sometimes they're large, large organizations, like we've done work with you know, Dallas Cowboys. So um, it's really all over the board. I think it's really, I think the common denominator is people who are ready to um, have a fresh approach to their industry. They're ready to break from the commonly held narrative. They're ready to shake things up, do things differently, um, be a little uncomfortable and be willing to break away from the pact. And I think it's people who are, are, are at a minimum on board with the idea that fun and humor is an, is a different uh, new, fresh approach that other people just haven't uh, really tackled before. So that's really fun for us because when people come to us, they generally already trust that the way we do things um, can work. And so they're, you know, they're, they're a bit built in or um, the trust is a bit built in, which is so great for us because then we can really push the boundaries and push the edges with them and like really have fun and, and not be at risk of watering everything down. It's funny because, I mean, you've been to our website too, you know, like a big part of the reason for the artwork and all that other stuff is, is we're just like, this is fun. That's yeah, why we do it. That's yeah. a big part of what drives that sort of, you know, visual, the visual voice is largely because we're like, it's fun to create this stuff uh, more than anything else. Like that is the biggest driver. And, and you know, I think about uh, when I, I gave a, a talk, I did a workshop for a really large bank, uh, you know, like, like a big fortune 500 company. And I remember that the night before I went to a shopping center in LA and they had posters for this big bank. And I was looking at these posters and I thought to myself, huh, I noticed these posters because I'm talking to their global marketing team tomorrow. Mm. I wonder if I would have even caught, if they would have caught my eye if, you know, I wasn't talking to them. And then I thought about the fact that, you know, we have our friend Mars Dorian who does like this really provocative, crazy artwork. And I thought, well, if he designed those posters, everybody would stop and see them. Like they would be impossible to ignore. Yeah. And yet to basically convince a legacy brand that's been around for, you know, 150 years to say, you know what, let's go do something wildly different and let's totally, you know, disrupt this brand that you're used to with this sort of consistent voice. Uh, I thought this is a tall order. Like people might feel like their heads are going to roll. And at the same time, I'm like, well, you know what? It's either that or get washed up in a sea of sameness. I fully agree. I mean, we say all the time, it's it's like a, a little... It's like a quote that we have um, internally as a team. And it's this idea that standing out isn't a matter of taste. It's a matter of survival. I mean, you have to do something to um, separate yourself from the pack. And I think so. people are so afraid of pissing off just uh, you know a sect of their industry or losing one client that they water down everything they do. And then everything is vanilla and everything's mundane and everything's uninteresting. And it's been it's been put through the ringer of of so many uh you know eyes and teams that just keep stripping down anything that can make it unique and memorable and fresh and that's the sad part is when like businesses are getting so big is that they're just losing all like all that opportunity to really make an impact with their their customers and they're just leaning mm-hmm. into hey we have a we already have notoriety because we're a big brand as opposed to having any sort of longevity or shelf life long-term with their customers and building these relationships that actually matter and, and will be effective in the long term. Yeah. Wow. 
So, you know, I have one other question around this whole idea of standing out. So one thing that I, I, I see, you know, there's a while back, one of my friends who, you know, occasionally will refer a guest to us and you know, a list of a lot of her clients, uh, you know, and their websites. And I put them all right up, you know, next to each other in multiple browser tabs. And I, I was like, why do I feel like I'm reading the same website over and over again? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and, and I've noticed this and this is not a criticism on Marie Forleo at all, but like a lot of the people who come out of her B school, like it's amazing how many sites you see that look either exactly like hers uh, or, you know, try to mimic that. And, you know, I wonder how you break people of that temptation to mimic the people that they look up to, because I, I understand the logic behind it. But I've also been, you know, the one to rail against it. I mean, it's the ethos of everything that we stand for is to stop doing that. Like we literally wrote a book about it. And I always jokingly say the other title of my book could have been Everybody is Full of Shit. Mm-hmm. Uh, although I don't know that Penguin would want to put their name <laughs> on that. But uh, but yeah, I mean, that, that like I, I realized in some sophisticated way, I just spent 250 you know pages saying exactly that in a, in a much more polite way. But that's kind of what, you know, I drew as my conclusion when I, after, you know, five, six years of watching this, it was just like, wait a minute, why is there so much mimicry? Well, I think the problem is, first of all, I, you know, I, and again, it is no shade to Marie Forleo. She's built an empire and I, and I give her all the credit in the world for it. But I think the problem is that so many people coming out of it say, I want to be her. And so they do, they copycat the exact same, exact same language, color palette, format, all of that. And yeah, it works for Marie Forleo because she was the first to do it. It doesn't work for you because all you all you look like is a watered down, copycat, uh, unoriginal version of Marie Forleo. So no, you aren't the memorable one. You aren't the one people are going to be talking about and paying attention to. It works for her because she was the first. She was the innovator. It's not innovative to just rip off what someone else is doing. And yeah, we have had, I think especially early on, we had a lot of people from that space coming to work with us and really approaching us and and feeling like and believing that like the way that they were talking about the thing that they did was so unique and so different. And and our challenge is to say, okay, you're you really sound like the masses right now. So in order to work with you, we actually have to say something different. We actually have to develop your voice and and the language you utilize in a way that doesn't look like all the other people in your industry. And that's going to probably probably be pretty uncomfortable for you because this feels safe and you see this thing out there working, but you can't be that thing if you want to be um, noticed and you want people excited about your brand. And so, yeah, it, it really is having to kind of undo a lot of the, the learned strategies and tactics that people have have seen work for other people and, and, and show them it's not going to work for you because it's already been done. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, well, that's the, that's the, you know, when I, when I always tell people, I said, the best thing you can do in an online course is not to follow the instructions to the letter. Uh, that to me was one of those things. I, and I learned that lesson early on because of this blog mastermind course I took, it was a course about how to start a blog. And the result of taking that course was the podcast. Uh, Mm -hmm. ironically, because one of the lessons was to interview one person as a way to get traffic. And I just said, okay, you know what? I'm going to interview people as a weekly series instead. And, you know, that was like the precursor of the podcast, but it was like a, a, just a a slight deviation from the instructions that made all the difference in the world. For sure. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's, you know, I think that there's so many people who are so scared to do that. I commend you for doing that because that is a bold step and that can feel very uncomfortable and unfamiliar for people. And there is you know, I say this in air quotes, risk involved, no. but that like when you are willing to be an outlier, like the outliers get the attention. The outliers are the ones that make you, uh, you know, 
take notice and pause in your tracks and and backpedal and go, I want more of what he or she is dishing out. And it's because they are the ones that are willing to do something different. And that can be so scary for people. And I empathize with that. And that's something where I think that, you know, my uh, just... I, I really love getting to work with clients. Like I, I tend to do all the, uh, the client relationship manage, management for lack of a better word, but really being able to interact with our clients and, and helping them walk through this process in a way that they're comfortable and they're excited and, uh, and getting them prepped for, Hey, this is going to feel a little, um, difficult for you. You're going to want to backpedal into the way you were doing things. You're going to want to, um, you know, again, like I, I've said before, water down your process, but we're not going to let you do that. And we're here by your side, ensuring that that doesn't happen. So, uh, but yeah, I, I, I get, I get the propensity for it. Yeah. Wow. So I want to ask you a completely unrelated question to our conversation. Uh, yeah. because I, I've been, it's funny, like I, as I do research for different projects, I'm like, Oh, I got people I can talk to about this. I'm working on this new piece about making decisions. And I, I asked maybe one other person this, what do you think are the most important decisions in your life? Just broadly yeah. in life? Oh yeah. boy. I think, um, that's a great question. I, I would think that the, if I'm thinking of my own life, I think the best decisions I've ever made are to, um, really strengthen my self worth and my self perception. I think it 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 has been the domino effect that have po- has positively affected every other part of my life. It has made me um a good partner to my husband. It has made me a great partner to my business partner. It has allowed me to uh, take risks and and strike out on my own as an entrepreneur. It's allowed me to pick myself back up. When um, I'm feeling doubtful or I'm feeling frustrated or I'm feeling uh, triggered or scared or any of those things, I think like that has been the best decision. And, and, and what that means for me is like when I think of like uh, a personal goal of, of what of my goal in life is, is not to be happy all the time. My goal in life is to be able to sit with the discomfort that life can offer. And what I mean by that is like, uh, can I sit with the highs and can I sit with the lows and can I not lose myself um, in any of those places? Like, can I learn to just fully like and embrace and be with myself through all of those experiences? So that has been crucial. Um, so that's been a that's a huge decision. I think also a big decision is to really value kindness in people. Um, my husband is the kindest person I know. He is consistent. He is honest. He is good natured, and I. Thankfully, I chose a partner where uh, th- that was a value I I cherished over everything else because that is a thing that has had shelf life in the 10 years we've been together. Um, I think kindness is so underrated and it doesn't feel as sexy as some of the other qualities people possess. But that is something that's been just... Um, I, I do not regret choosing that quality in someone. My business partner also is incredibly kind uh, incredibly loyal, incredibly honest. And that is also what's helped to make us a really uh, effective duo and build an agency and, and be the leaders of a really, uh, in- incredible, creative, smart, uh, you know, integral team. And so, yeah, those are just two off the cuff answers. The other best decision of my life was to get a dog. <laughs> and, wow. and that's added so much you know, joy to my life. And, uh, and I would have a hundred if, if I could fit them in my home. (laughs) So, so yeah. Awesome. Well, I have, uh, one final question for you, which I know you've heard me ask, uh, what do you think it is? I think somebody or something unmistakable. 
What makes someone unmistakable? I think I think it is integrity. I think you can sniff it out a mile away. I think you know when someone is um, operating in the full capacity of who they are, deeply tied to their values, their morals, um, believing in the in kind of the the greater good, and and uh, and really uh, aligned with kind of their their deepest truest self, as opposed to someone who is so caught up and concerned with what everyone else is doing, having to keep up with the Joneses, having to. Um, to put on a false narrative of who they are and who the world thinks they should be. Um, I think, yeah, I think the difference between someone who is, has deep integrity and a, some, and someone who has, is just operating from a, a place of just bullshit and fluff and hot air. Um, I think that's what makes someone unmistakable. We, we gravitate toward the people that we, we sense are real and, and that cannot be manufactured. Amazing. Um, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story and your insights with the listeners. Where can people find out more about you, your work, and everything that you're up to? Yeah. Well, I want to say thank you so much for having me on. I have followed your work for years. So it is so exciting and such an honor to be on the pod. Um, listeners can uh, can find me at obedientagency.com and uh, obedientagency on on all social channels. And then if you want to just you know keep up with my life, it's Allie Lefever. Uh, and all social channels. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator, that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.